Bonjour. Ni hao. Hola. Mi nombre es Adam Spies. I don't know about your experience or exposure to foreign language, but my wife and I have had the privilege of living overseas in South Africa for a year. I've traveled to Ecuador, uh, Romania, China a few times, Western European countries. We've had the opportunity to host students from all around the world, uh, Saudi Arabia, Korea, Ghana, Nigeria. And for me, foreign language elicits a deep range of emotions. It can be from anything that's exhilarating type of conversations to those that are exhausting. I can think of the first time that I went overseas, my freshman year in college. At that time, I thought Pennsylvania was far, and so I signed up to go to a trip to Ecuador. And uh, shortly thereafter, what had been ingrained in me at a young age was this idea to live for a good deal. And so that traveled with me overseas because I discovered bartering. And it was awesome going to the marketplace. The third word I learned in Spanish was the word for too expensive. Because I could just say, demasiado, and turn away, right? And demasiado, and turn away. And I just had a blast coming home with four wool sweaters, wool hats, which made their way to Goodwill. I never could wear them, right? But I just enjoyed, it was exhilarating going around the marketplace in Ecuador. I can think of being in Southeast Asia and after a long day, heading into McDonald's and going up to the counter and saying, bing chilling. I would like a vanilla ice cream cone, right? And so I had this confidence of being able to enjoy a energizing and refreshing treat at the end of the day because I could walk right in to McDonald's. Now, I was in uh, Southeast Asia, and there was a team of us, and some on that team had a propensity, a desire for high adventure kind of opportunities. And so uh, what we did is we were in this park, and we went up this very large platform that we climbed And as we kind of made our way to the top, they began giving us instructions in a foreign language and strapped us in and kind of made our way to the platform. And what I heard behind me was a countdown of sorts. And so as this was happening and it got quiet, I felt a slight nudge that pushed me off the platform. And it was my first and only ever experience bungee jumping. All right. It literally, it cost me $10. It was amazing. I survived, of course, and it was an exhilarating experience. Now, for as many times that I've enjoyed those experiences, I've also had the exhausting experiences with foreign language. I had always been a decent student. I would strive to get A's, right? And uh, when I was in high school, the requirement was you had to kind of take two years of two languages or three years of one language. Well, math was easy for me, and so three years was less, so I was just going to sign up for Spanish for three years and be done with it, right? Well, I did fine for Spanish one and two because I could memorize and just kind of recite, but when it came to Spanish three, I actually had to begin to articulate the language, and I barely pulled C's. I was horrible. Like, I, I was a terrible Spanish student. I remember being in Romania, and we were about a half hour, 45 minutes away from our hotel, and we were doing a project with a team of five of us, and 
at that time, uh, I didn't prepare or plan ahead very well, so I didn't have any information on me. It was kind of before cell phones were readily available to. And uh, so we went over there, and uh, I didn't have the address back home. We took four or five bus routes to get, and it was stressful, uh, like exhausting, just thinking about how are we going to get back home. I remember being in Prague, and someone stole my camera, and I had signed up for travel insurance. So what I knew I needed was to uh, have a police report on file. Now, trying to do that at Czech Republic is a little difficult. So going to the police office and then have them fill out a report was extremely strenuous. But even more important than that, I can think of multiple conversations that I've had with others who English is not their native language. Ahmed, Teju, Helen, a whole host of other people, where you're trying to get to know their heart and share your own heart. And the barrier of language has you come across as confusing and unfamiliar. A wide range of emotions when it comes to dealing with foreign language. Many of us have maybe had similar experience with those that we've interacted with. Well, for the next three weeks, we're going to jump into a series, Living to Make Jesus Make Sense. What we recognize is that Jesus doesn't always make sense to the culture around us. In a book that came out a few years ago, Unchristian, by the author David Kinnaman, he says that, based on his findings from the Barna Research Group, that 78% of people think Christianity is old-fashioned. 68% perceive it to be boring. 72% feel it is out of touch with reality. To many, Jesus seems outdated, inconsequential, and unrecognizable. Much like communicating uh, in a foreign language, the sharing of the gospel or the story of God can also elicit some of the deepest emotions. It can be exhilarating of having a joy and a pleasure of being able to help others understand the gospel. But it also can be exhausting at times, just grasping for straw for the right words to say so that others can stand the depth of God's love for them. Unlike, in, unlike language where I found that English can carry me far enough that I haven't found a huge necessity to learn another language, that I feel this deep burden that I'm passionate of wanting to be able to articulate and communicate the gospel in a way that others can understand. I know many of you feel that same burden as well, that you want to be able to share the good news of what Jesus does in a way that makes sense to others. As a church body, it's our driving value. We say it this way, we live to make Jesus make sense. Will you guys repeat this with me? We live to make Jesus make sense. We are preoccupied with making any necessary sacrifice to make the story of Jesus clear and accessible to anyone seeking after him. This value motivates why we do what we do. 
This value educates what we will do and at times, quite frankly, what we won't do. This value influences how we do what we do. We don't assume Jesus makes sense to everyone. Well, for the next three weeks, we're going to kind of launch from a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's page 937 in the Bibles in front of you. And here we see the Apostle Paul kind of penned through uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has a baseline where he understands Jesus doesn't make sense to everyone. If you are newer to grace, uh, we say this fairly often, if you don't have a Bible or the one that you love, please take that. That's our free gift to you. Uh, We'd also would encourage you to follow along. We create uh, series companion guides. What that is is to take this conversation in your home throughout the week. So you can do it individually or as a family. It's designed for five days of the week for about 10, 15 minutes of the day. And those are available at the back table on your way out. Hopefully there. You can follow with me on the screen as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in these eight verses, there's a lot there. We see a common word that is repeated fairly often. Did you recognize it? It's this word reconciliation. Five times just within these eight verses. And the word reconciliation comes from a family of Greek words, which means to change and or exchange. Reconciliation evolves in this context a change in the relationship between God and man. Reconciliation assumes that there had been a breakdown in the relationship to where it's one of animosity and fragmentation, but one that is possible to be moved to that of Harmony in fellowship. Reconciliation is something that is offered by the one doing it. It's not something that is possible for an estranged person to conjure up or manufacture. I'd like you to write it down this way, then we're going to explore it. The gospel is the message of God offering reconciliation to humanity. Paul says elsewhere that we were powerless, ungodly, sinners, 
enemies of God, deserving God's wrath. Yet, God reconciles us to himself through Jesus. It's through Jesus that reconciliation with a perfect, a holy, which just means set apart, God is made possible. We call this good news or offer of reconciliation, the gospel. I love in verse 21, it's a great summary of the gospel. It says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, who lived and walked a perfect life to be sin for us. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sin upon his shoulders so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not just that God took the punishment of our sin, but he also granted or gave us his righteousness, which means his perfection. This is what the theologians would refer to as the great exchange, that Jesus takes our punishment but offers his righteousness, his perfection in our place. It's through the gospel where we can move from being an enemy of God to becoming a friend of God. It's through the gospel where we can move from being estranged to becoming a contributing member of God's family. So what I see in this passage is a process that kind of shows steps where one moves from being estranged to a contributing member of God's family. So I'd like to kind of share these three steps in the form of questions. And the first we find in verse 14. It says, For Christ's love compels us. Why? Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Convinced is a strong word. If you were to ask me this past Monday if I was convinced that Kyrie Irving would be traded this offseason, I would say I think it's likely from everything I read. Him and LeBron don't seem to be getting along as well. He wants his own team. But to throw a word convinced around that trade, I would have been very cautious to do so. Even now, I don't know if he's convinced that the trade could possibly be voided, right? And so... Convinced is this strong belief, assumption in a particular issue. Now, when it comes to spiritual matters, often we talk about living by faith. And sometimes we may think or perceive faith to be um, placing our hope in something that might be likely, right? But we don't blindly choose faith. We see that faith as described in the book of Hebrews is this. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Sounds like we can be confident that we can have assurance and still hold on to faith. That we can be convinced yet living and walking by faith. I said yes to Jesus at a fairly young age. But for me, in my journey of kind of understanding who Jesus was, there was a point where there were some very convincing arguments about the credibility of his claims and him being the source of God's plan of reconciliation. 
And it was related around this idea of Jesus fulfilling prophecy. Now, prophecy literally means that God foretold us, um, kind of gave clarity, expectations of what he planned to do in the future. So what we see in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the first three-fourths, kind of four-fifths of our Bible. It's 39 books written over the course of about a thousand years that there are hundreds of prophecies foretelling of what God's plan of reconciliation is. And we see that the Old Testament written in Hebrew was translated hundreds of years into Greek, known as the Septuagint, before Christ would be born. That gave us confirmation that what we had in the Old Testament was written well before Jesus was born. We even see uh, in 1948 that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. That gave us confirmation of what was written in the Old Testament well before Jesus' birth. And so in there we find this idea of Jesus being the culmination of prophecy that God foretold his people for many, many years. And when I think of prophecy, there's kind of three main categories that we're going to go over this morning. It's the idea of prophecy related to his birth, his life, and his death. Forewarning, we're going to fly. I'm not going to go over a lot of scripture. I'm just going to give you references. Uh, Those who love to write everything down, you're going to be tempted. It might be impossible to do so. Uh, If you're in a grace group, your group leaders have these. You can also email me. It's in the program if you'd like them. You ready? His birth. Genesis 49.10, that he would be born of a particular tribe in the nation of Israel, a uh, specific family line, that of the tribe of Judah. More so than that, that he would come from a particular family line of David, who was the king, that he would be royalty. There would be other prophecies, excuse me, related to uh, his lineage from Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Solomon. It specifically said that this promised one deliverer would be born in a particular city, that of Bethlehem, born in a manger. Now, stop for a moment. Some of these names may not sound as familiar to us. It would be uh, much like someone coming to us and say, hey, I'm going to tell you, the next president of the United States is going to come from the family line of George Washington through his first son, John Park, and he's going to be born in Doylestown, Ohio. You would think that's pretty special, right? But what if they went further on and said, and guess what? He's going to be born on a very rare and unique and special day, much like we experienced this past Monday. Monday. How many of you uh, purchased solar eclipse glasses? All right, not too many of you. We had kind of a homemade solar eclipse kind of here around 2.30, right? But something very unique that doesn't come around very often. And you would think, wow, that's pretty specific, right? Well, it was prophesied that a star would announce the birth of the Savior that we see in Numbers 24-7. Now, If you watch Christmas plays closely, you may see these people known as the Magi. Now, 
we're not quite always sure who they are or kind of where they fit in the story. Well, they're astrologers who were looking to the skies for God's promise and his answer. And so admit seeing the star, which we don't quite know what it was. Maybe it was a supernova, a conjection of stars, something special that they began to make their journey and trip to see the promised one because of what they saw in the sky, that it was announced with a star. But even more than that is that he would be born of a virgin, that a young teenage girl who had never had sex would become pregnant for nine months, carry a baby, and then he would be born of Mary. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord will give you a sign, a pretty amazing sign, I would say. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is just related to his birth. Related to his life, we see that it was said he would come from a particular area, that he would be called out or kind of live in Egypt because Early in Jesus' kind of childhood, shortly as he was a baby, right? Um, His stepfather, Joseph, got a dream from him that he would, uh, that Herod kind of wanted to kill the other babies. He needed to get out of Dodge. And so he made his way to Egypt. And we see that it was foretold he would live in Egypt. And then he would come back to Israel and begin ministry in a particular region of Galilee with particular cities, Zebulun and Naphtali. So very specific of where Jesus would kind of have his ministry at. Not only that, that he would speak in parables, that Jesus would tell big, small stories to highlight big ideas. It literally means to lay aside. And in the New Testament, we have over 30 or more parables that Jesus tells. But even more than that, that he would perform miracles. Multiple times in the book of Isaiah, it forecasts the miracles that he would do, which gave claims that he was more than just an earthly ruler or an extremist, but that he was able to do God-empowered things. Isaiah 35 says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, The lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. It foretold of all the miraculous things that this promised one deliverer would do. Prophecies related to his birth. Prophecies related to his life. The most overwhelming evidence is given in prophecies related to his death. That he would be sold exactly for 30 pieces of silver that he would be betrayed by a friend, Judas. That that money Judas would use to betray him would be given to a potter. The New Testament says that with the money Judas betrayed him, a potter's field was purchased. That he would be forsaken by disciples, accused falsely, smitten and spit upon, weak and helpless, that Jesus was at a point after receiving his beatings, that he couldn't even carry his cross. That his hands and feet would be pierced. This is a clear reference to the form of crucifixion as execution. 
the Jews never engaged in this form of capital punishment. It would be hundreds of years later when this was written that the Romans would begin to institute it. But specifically that his hands and feet would be pierced. That he would be killed alongside criminals. That he would be ridiculed by people. That his garments would be divided by lots that were cast, that he was given gall and vinegar to drink while he was on the cross, that his friends would stand far away, that his bones would not be broken, that his side would be pierced, that darkness would be over the land, particularly at noon, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. The evidence is overwhelming. Isaiah 53 describes who this is in the character of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That Jesus, God's son, God's promised source of reconciliation, would be the one to take our pain, our sufferings, our sin, our transgressions, our iniquities on himself. By his wounds we would be extended peace. We'd, be, we'd receive healing. Through his death, God would offer reconciliation. The amount of fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament is overwhelming. The odds of this happening by chance are few and far between mathematically impossible. We would say it's unlikely odds that you might strike the lottery ball winner. Like this past Wednesday, Mavis Wansack of uh, Massachusetts had a 1 in 292 million chance of having all six numbers correct. Well, there were scientists that wrote a book called Science Speaks. And literally their hope was to look at only eight major prophecies and see the likelihood that one person could fulfill all those. And so mathematically, what they determined was that there was a one in 10 to the 17th power chance that this could be anyone other than what God had promised, right? What that means is it's one to 10 with 17 zeros, The illustration that they gave in the book was, imagine the state of Texas, which we should be praying for at the moment. Imagine the state of Texas, right? And in there, you kind of throw a silver dollar. Maybe you mark that silver dollar with a check mark. Now you fill the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet high. In the likelihood that the probability of that being by chance is that God foretold exactly his plan of reconciliation for years in advance that Jesus would be the culmination of that plan. I think for you and I, it poses this question. 
Am I convinced that Jesus is God's long-term plan of reconciliation? Do I believe that his death was necessary to receive peace from God? Do I believe that it was sufficient to appease the wrath and justice of a perfect and holy God? Jesus has and will always be God's plan for reconciliation. Jesus knew it about himself. That's why in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm going to show a way, or I'm going to point out the way, but he rather said, I am the way. Am I convinced that Jesus is God's plan of reconciliation? Now, I said there's kind of a process by which one would move from estranged to becoming a contributing member of God's family. The first step is that we're convinced in who he is and what he has come to do. In the second step, we see in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. To be in Christ means that Christ is in me, that I have confessed, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if we believe in confess, which literally means we agree with God, we agree who God says we are, and we agree who he says he is, that by faith we receive justice, that we are justified, that we receive his Holy Spirit as a seal, as a promise of our redemption, right? That we receive that Christ is in us and we are changed, You and I cannot begin to understand who we are in Christ until we explore who we were outside of Christ. That I am no longer who I once was. That God radically changed and transformed, that he has made me a new creation. That he has given me life. Ephesians 2 said, I was dead, deserving of God's wrath, but God offered freely this gift of salvation in himself, that we can be made alive, that we can become new creations. At the point of saying yes to Jesus, we don't just see, receive a moral renovation. Rather, we see, receive a spiritual resurrection. It is a new Life. We are changed. And this change is not only an event that we would call reconciliation, but it is a process of transformation. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. That once we understand God and his character, we can become transformed to represent who he is, to act, to think, to live like Jesus. After having been convinced in view of the gospel, we offer our lives as a sacrifice. Our mind, our will, our full self in response to what God has done for us. And God transforms us to make us more like himself. The question that it begs to each of us is this. 
Has my life been changed by the power God offers? For those that have said yes to Jesus, you have a story of life change. That God has taken you from being dead to alive. A story that testifies of his power, of his Holy Spirit, and his resurrection. That God is the author of change. That God takes us from being dead to alive. Your story is different than my story. We all have different experiences, backgrounds, family environments. Often your story may have more credibility to others than maybe they perceive my story, right? Sometimes as the pastor up front, maybe they view me as like this paid salesman who's talking about the gospel, right? I I hope not, but the idea of you're the satisfied customer, so to speak, that gets the point of look at what God has done in my life. How has the gospel radically changed your life? I know for me, I think through kind of a series of questions to formulate a story. Some of us have multiple stories of God radically changing our life. What type of person was I before I met Christ or submitted my life to him? Maybe some of us said yes to Jesus at a young age, but was there a point in your life as you matured where you kind of gave God complete control, allowed him to direct and to guide your life? What were the circumstances that caused you to submit your life? What was it that finally triggered that decision? What were the events, the circumstances surround that decision? And what is the primary difference that Christ has made in my life? Last weekend, uh, we had a family vacation with my wife's side of the family. We were at Lake Michigan, and there were 20 of us. We have 12 kids in our family. And, uh, and they're all like mostly under age of five. It's a little chaotic at times. And uh, we finally had one evening where all the kids were in bed and the adults were downstairs and my mother-in-law kind of took advantage. This was our final evening together and just asked us, what is a Bible verse that has impacted your life? And uh, I heard kind of my brother, brother-in-law, sister-in-law go around sharing just kind of this verse that had meant a lot to them. And one that came to mind for me was a verse that I discovered shortly uh, around college after college was Galatians 1.10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For much of my early life, I can remember being a people pleaser. I wanted to live my life perfectly. I wanted to have straight A's. I wanted to have other people compliment me on how I uh, achieved or maybe certain success. When I came to recognize that my identity could be found not in what other people think, but in who God said I am, that I could live from acceptance, not for acceptance. 
that I didn't have to base my approval or my worth based upon what others said, that I wasn't always searching or looking for that compliment to blow wind in my sails, that I could live differently because of who I was in Christ. It's still a struggle. I'm far from beyond it. But it's a story of life change. Your story is different. Your story is powerful. Your story has the opportunity to point to a God who has amazing power and love and grace and wants to restore us, wants to transform us, wants us to resemble who he is. Has my life been changed by the power God offers? One final thing that I want us to see, and it's in verse 14. Have I been convinced? Have my life been changed? The final thing today. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. I'd like you to write it down this way. Do I feel compelled by the love of Christ to share it with others? Do I feel compelled by the love of Christ to share it with others? The whole message of reconciliation is centered around God's love and his death on the cross. This message of reconciliation has been entrusted to us to share with others. Have you ever thought of it this way? That great Uh, that most possibly the greatest act of love that I could ever extend to someone else is to share the gospel with them. That in 1 John chapter 4, it shows this connection of God's love with the relation of our love for others. It shows how God's love is this impetus for us to love others. Verse 7 of chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. God's indispensable quality is love. His intrinsic nature is love. God is the originator, the source, the inventor of love. He lives in a perfect relationship of love within himself. John goes on to show how that love was demonstrated and modeled. Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. God's love was demonstrated, exemplified through Jesus in his sacrifice on the cross. We read through the Gospels and we see uh, the love of Jesus. We see as he interacts with lepers. We see as he heals and cares for those who were sick. We see him as in his interaction with the disciples. We see him around little children. But the culmination of his love is in his willful choice to die an unjust death for our benefit. 
on the cross. Verse 11, dear friends, since that happened, since God so loved us, we also ought. The natural thing for us to do is to extend that love. Once we experience and embrace that love, we begin or should begin to show it to others. God's love is the catalyst. We love because he first loved us. It's the catalyst, it's the impetus for our love for others. Our love for God is most clearly seen, evaluated in how we seek to love others. If we have said yes to Jesus and we truly love others, our desire will be to make Jesus make sense to them. Our desire will be to use every avenue to make sure that the story of God is clear and accessible. If we truly love them, we will pray asking God's Holy Spirit to bring about a change in understanding to remove the blinders off their eyes so they can see the goodness and grace found in the gospel. If we truly love others, our desire will be to speak a language that they understand. To live to make Jesus make sense. I read a story recently where there was a guy uh, in World War II, Nazi Germany, by the name of Father Maximilian Kolbe. And he was arrested and thrown into a concentration camp for harboring Jewish refugees and distributing kind of anti-Nazi propaganda. And uh, he was transferred early on to Auschwitz. And he had some of the worst beatings uh, that he had received while in this concentration camp. One point, uh, nearly to death, and kind of fellow prisoners dragged him to the reformery and helped him kind of to get back and be able to heal. In July of 41, there was an escape from camp. And so the guards determined that they were going to execute someone for every person that had escaped camp. And there was a young man by the name of Francis. Francis was married, and he had young kids. And he was chosen for execution at the concentration camp. And Father Maximilian Colby raised his hand. And he said, I am willing to take his place. And he did just that. They tried starving him to death and eventually injected something where he died. I often think about how Francis' life was different because of what Maximilian Colby did for him. Do you think he lived his life with a deep sense of joy and gratitude over the sacrifice that was made for him? Do you think he told others about what happened at that camp? Do you think his family and friends all knew the story of Maximilian Colby? We worship a God who raised his hand. He willingly took our place, took our punishment, offered us his righteousness that we did not deserve out of love. It's the only truly motivating factor to help others make sense of who he is. 
It's God's love in what he did in the gospel that serves as the driving factor of why we live to make Jesus make sense. I don't know where you're at on your journey of following Jesus. What I know is I can't be compelled until I've been changed. I can't be changed until I've been convinced. And I would encourage you, if you're investigating Jesus, continue to do so. I believe that God has told us what he planned to do for all time. That his source of reconciliation is in Jesus. If you've said yes to Jesus, what's your story of transformation? What news stories is God continuing to work in your life through the power of the gospel? Are you sharing that story with others? Do you point and testify to his power and what he has done in your life? If we struggle sharing with others, we live and we recognize it can be exhausting at times. What's our source for motivation? Do we allow the gospel to propel and compel us to share with others? Do we have a heart to realize that we can make an eternal difference in the lives of others? We live to make Jesus make sense. We're preoccupied with making any necessary sacrifice so that the story of Jesus may be clear and accessible. Father, we... uh, Thank you for what you've done. Lord, we can't be reminded of it enough. And it defines and it empowers uh, our life and how we live and the response and how we see others. And Lord, I pray that that you would continue to uh, give us the words to share about who you are and what you've done in our life. Lord, that your love for us would be the well with which we seek to share with others. Lord, our desire of many of us is that we would live to make you make sense. That we would be clear in the story of the gospel. And the reconciliation is possible through Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.